So, good morning. Imagine yourself in a 19 years old, 90, sorry, years old telecommunication company. Imagine you work with more than 120,000 colleagues spread around the world. Imagine you have to serve more than 320 million customers distributed in 21 countries. You got it? That is Telefonica. And five years ago, Telefonica asked us, the R&D organization, to create a new portfolio of digital products in a context of high uncertainty and constant change. So how could we do it? We looked outside for alternatives, and it felt as Lean Startup could be of help. If you think about it, the situation of an innovation project team when they start in terms of uncertainty is very similar to the one a startups face. So we started with a couple of innovation projects and then uh, we applied it to an innovation program we had in place. And this gave us the experience and the confidence to take the next step that was applying it to all the innovation projects. And this is how our Lean Elephants innovation framework was created. And when we started, we didn't know if this was going to work or not. But now we have a framework that allows us to focus on the customer from the very beginning, to create products and services our customers want and need, and with a validated business model. We also have an stage gating process that ensures that we are minimizing the risk and we are minimizing also the resources invested. Because the investment in the project increases as the project progresses with validated learnings, incrementally, in a very similar way as the venture capital world works. But we're also fostering entrepreneurship. We have innovation calls where employees can submit their ideas for potential innovation projects. But the most important thing is that it has allowed us to accelerate our innovation cycles. Now we are twice faster than we were before. This means that within the same time frame and budget, we can test more ideas and therefore augment the probabilities of finding a successful idea. But this wasn't easy. It may feel as a harder race with several obstacles you have to overcome. But I prefer to describe the process as a roller coaster ride with its ups and downs, moments of panic, but also a lot of moments of pure thrill. Because the important thing of Lean Startup is that you have to learn how to adapt it to your company and to your context. Two years ago, a colleague and I were here at the conference in December 2014, sharing our experience of applying Lean Startup at Telefonica. Today, what I want to share with you are the key four key strategies if you're ready to jump in the Lean Startup Adventure. Hacking your culture, getting buy-in from leadership, setting the right environment, experimenting in a big company. One of our external mentors, Mario Lopez de Avila, says there is no right or wrong culture in your company. You may agree or not with it, but the truth is that in a big, an established, mature company, it's very difficult to change the culture. So our approach here is you have to understand 
the culture in your company and learn how to make things work in that company to your own advantage. You have to become a corporate innovation hacker. You have to engage with a lot of people from different departments, different organizations, understand how they work, explain how you work and why, and then try to help them to get their support so you can do what you want to do with innovation. To give you an example, we sit regularly with our business units to understand the challenges they're facing and their customers are facing. And then we launch innovation calls to address those challenges. And the magic of all this is by doing things different, you want it or not, you're starting to change the company. Unlike in the butterfly effect, it doesn't have to start with the whole company. It can start with one team, with one organization. It's interesting, when we came back from the conference to our country on our day-to-day -day work, our communications and PR department made a great effort to communicate and spread the word, especially internally, on how a Spanish multinational had become a reference in the Lean Startup world. And we grabbed an attention we didn't have before. But I realized that something was really starting to change. In January 2015, when I got to the office at 7 a.m. in the morning, as I usually do, I got in the elevator, and then Juan, who was by then the controller of Telefonica R&D, got in the elevator with me. Juan is a marvelous person. He is also an amazing professional, but his job is being Mr. No. So, when he gets in the elevator and he says, Susanna, I need to talk to you, my brain automatically goes, oh, come on, what have I done now? Please, it's just 7 a.m. in the morning. I cannot start the day like this. But then he goes and says, I love the talk you gave at the Lean Startup Conference. Can you recommend me some books so I can learn more about it? So now he's a believer as well as my mindfulness teacher. But just a few, week, few, uh, sorry, a few weeks afterwards, I was in the elevator again. So you see elevators are not only important for startups. I was in the elevator and David, who was by then the, the head of human resources at Telefonic R&D, got in the elevator. So David, once again, is a wonderful person, an amazing professional. But part of his job is dealing with people that have low performance. So when he tells me, Susanna, I need to speak with you. Well, there I was again, trapped in a box, but this time with a bit. When we got out of the elevator and I found the strength to ask him what was exactly he wanted to talk about, he told me that that year they had the objective of becoming a lean organization in global HR. And he wanted me to give a talk to all the HR managers of what Lean Startup was and what being a lean organization meant. After that, they got really engaged. I also had to give some talks to the people as well. Since then, what happens? Two great things happen here. The first one is I realized we had the opportunity to change the whole company. And the second one is now I use more the stairs. The thing is, I love having these conversations. 
but my heart prefers to have them out of a box. After that, a lot of people from different organizations, different departments in the company, uh, also from different countries, Germany, Chile, Argentina, have contacted us to learn how they can apply Lean Startup in their organizations and improve things there. I also created the Lean Startup community, anybody can join, and then we share experiences, uh, we also get training, we bring experts to give talks. Even the Universitas Telefonica, that is the corporate university where all our executives uh, get uh, their, their training, has asked us to give talks there and even to mentorship some of those executives. And this leads me to the next point, getting buy-in from leadership. When you start, you are applying Lean Startup, it gives you a lot of credibility when you're in an executive committee because you're bringing market validations and even customer attraction. But still, if you need, you need to get commitment and support from talk management and stakeholders if you want innovation projects to progress in a big company. This is what Henry Chesworth calls getting upstairs in the building. By the way, this is my daughter's drawing. And in my experience, when you are trying to get buy-in from leadership, you may find yourself in two extreme situations or something in between. You may get these faces, like saying, seriously, with everything I got in my plate, you come with this idea of yours? Well, in this situation, the best thing you can do is start a small, lowest scale, even under the radar, and then when you have tangible results, go back and talk to these people. They will be more open to listen to you. In the other extreme, we have the over-enthusiastic, the one that says, what are we waiting for? So that's awesome. You nailed it, but watch out, because this person might want to do the changes globally and overnight, and you still have got to start a small because there is still a lot of uncertainty and you have to learn how to make things work in your company before you scale. When we started to apply Lean Startup, we thought that to make it work, we had to hire people from startups. But after several innovation calls where employees can present their ideas and if they are selected, then they get to work 100% of the time in those ideas. We realized that in a company of more than 120,000 employees, you can find this talent internally as well. They're just waiting for an opportunity to become visible. But processes and organizations in a big company are usually not designed to support innovation. Even the mindset and the way of working of teams and people are usually more focused on achievements and performance than on exploring. So you have to create the right environment or you may find yourself in a similar situation as the experiment or the story of the five monkeys in a big cage. Probably may, many of you know it, but basically the experimenter puts five monkeys in a big cage, bananas out of reach, a ladder, and each time a monkey tries to climb up the ladder to get the, to the bananas, the experimenter sprays with cold water the whole cage. This happens several times until when a monkey tries to climb up the ladder, the rest of the monkeys stop him and beat him. This even happens when the old monkeys are being replaced by new monkeys. 
And the new monkeys are the ones that are beating the monkey that is trying to climb up the ladder. They don't know why, but it's what the rest of the monkeys in the cage are doing. So this story, basically what it's trying to represent is the answer you may get when you're in a big company and you're trying to do things different. It has always been done this way. Don't mess with what works. Does it resound you? So you have to create what Eric Ries calls in his latest book, Islands of Freedom, where you trust your teams and you give them autonomy to make their own decisions. Because entrepreneurs love autonomy and the feeling of ownership. And it doesn't mean you're giving them free reign. As I said before, we have a stage gates. So every time a team comes to a stage gate, brings the results around key hypothesis validations, and then they present the plan, if they get a green light, then challenging milestones and KPIs are set. And it's also very important to help them change the mindset and the way of working, and you have to do this with training and also with mentorship. And it is absolutely key to help them create the right team. A team that is multidisciplinary with a mixture of profiles and skills, because if not, you're not going to get balanced results. We had an innovation project, to give, it a, give you an example. It started with three people. These three people were mainly business and customer research people. After three months of work, the results around the market and around the customer were awesome. But the work around the solution was very poor because no technical guy was part of the team and nobody was just looking at what the potential solution should look like. So once you create the right environment, you may bring people from outside from startups or internally. In our case, we have hired people from startups. And a few months ago, I was talking to one of those people, Ramon, and I was asking him how different was working at Telefonica from the startup he was working before. And he said this, I haven't really noticed much difference. We deliver a new release every two weeks, and the speed and the pressure is basically the same. Yeah, so when you're experimenting in a big company, there are certain experiments startups do that you cannot do without some adjustments. Because big companies have a reputation, have a brand, have got a portfolio, have got processes, and also organizations you have to rely on from the very beginning. To give you an example, three years ago, we wanted to launch a crowdfunding campaign. Not to raise funding, just to test the value proposition of a product we were building and also to identify potential early adopters for the product. And by then, things like Indiegogo's enterprise crowdfunding didn't exist. So what would have happened if Telefonica, a 50 billion euros in revenue company, had launched three years ago a crowdfunding campaign? Well, the good news is there is always a way to test your hypothesis. You have to get creative and find it. Another good news about big companies is that you have assets you can rely on to create new products and services. But even when you're experimenting relying on your assets, 
you are limited. In our particular case, the telco market is a regulated market. And we also have got service level agreements with our customers we have to fulfill. So regulation tells us the type of products and services we can offer. It also tells us what we are allowed to do with our assets. So when we are experimenting relying on our assets, we have to be very careful to comply with the legislation, but also not to endanger the services we are already providing. Recently, we have an innovation project to create a new service based on our communications network. And they needed to build and to design an MVP that would allow them to share it with customers, with real customers, to understand how the service should work. Doing it directly on our network, it would have taken us a lot of time and a lot of resources because we couldn't endanger the services that were already being provided. So the team came up with a two-part MVP. One part to test customer assistance. And this part had a web application, real customers were using, but each time an action was being made by any customer in this web application, behind the scenes, we had a person, a network operator, that was the one that manually was doing all the operations on the network. At the same time, we needed to test if we were able to build a service, to test the technology, but this was being done on the lab. To make this MVP possible, the team had to talk with more than 30 people from different organizations like marketing operations, understand how they work, and get their support and engage them to do this. And they had to go to the very last link in the chain, in this particular case, the network operators, to make this possible. So when you're in a big company, you also need bottom-up support. And this is what we call digging inside the building. Therefore, when you're in a big company, you need to get outside the building. We know this message, yeah, to have conversations, face-to-face -face conversations with potential users and customers. You have to get upstairs in the building to get leadership buy-in, but you also need bottom-up support and you have to dig inside the building. And you need the combination of the three of them. So when you're in a big company, you got a lot of things to do outside the building, but also a lot of work to do inside the building. If I had to extract the three main learnings of these four key strategies, this would be, first, don't be in a hurry. Key, it's absolutely key to be patient and to start small. Understand your culture, understand how it works, and make it work to your own advantage. Hack it. And results have a powerful voice on their own. They can help you show that the Lean Startup can make a difference in your company. So what's next? Are we at the end of the road? Not even close. Right now we are focusing in two particular areas. The first one 
is making more efficient our process of transferring our innovation projects once they are ready to the business unit. It is the most critical moment of our innovation project. And we are doing this based on success stories. And the second thing we're focusing is on improving our art of killing. Because killing a project is important because it gives you an opportunity to test other ideas. But it's also very important to share the learnings with all the company. So if you have any comments and suggestions around these two areas, they're more than welcome. Maybe I can be here next year sharing the results. If you're interested, please do tell the organization. The thing is, um, I'd love to be here next year. Thank you. Thank you, Susanna, that was excellent. I'm gonna kick off the first question and I'm gonna ask people to raise their hands so I can come. I'm gonna get the back first because it's not fair that you're in the back. So I'll, um, first question I have for you is metrics. So we talk about doing things differently. We talk about killing things faster. What were the critical metrics early on in your change and what are they now? How, how have you seen some change in those? Okay, so basically in the past we used to have a lot of quantitative metrics. That is what the top management loves because it's very easy to understand if things are going well or not. But now we have uh, a lot of, because when you're starting the first stages of innovation, it's very difficult to, to have quantitative metrics. So uh, we have qualitative metrics that go around hypotheses validated in a certain period of time. Mainly, but of course we still have got quantitative metrics. We have a combination and we have quantitative metrics to give an idea of how is the health of our innovation funnel. Uh, metrics like uh, number of projects that have been transferred, um, number of projects that have been killed, this sort of thing. Does that answer your question? Hi, I'm Ramanuj from Macy's.com. I have a question like how do you keep the pressure off from your lean team and how you keep them motivated? Well, the good thing about this is that it's people about motivation. It's people that are presenting their ideas. It's like they're babies and you give them the opportunity without any risk of trying them. So they are super motivated. In fact, just being with this team is like, uh, every time I'm with them, it's like uh, I'm 10 years younger, yeah? I get out of there, it's like uh, an injection of adrenaline. So motivation is basically working on your own ideas, but also the autonomy to make your own decisions. And the pressure, I didn't understand if you say, how do we keep the pressure or not pressure? I don't... What do you mean with pressure out? Keep I mean, the pressure off of the people doing the work is what I hear. But the Keep pressure them from, undercover somehow. Oh, uh, okay. So they don't have the pressure from the rest of the company. Ah, okay. So basically what I said before, it's creating islands of freedom. Islands of freedom, so it's not isolated because they need to work with other people. But the pressure comes from, okay, you get this time, you get this budget to do this, and nobody else is there saying, hey, what are the results? What are the results? No, they... they we just isolate them somehow from the rest of the company. We haven't done it physically, but I would like to do that. We have another question over here. Uh, hi, I'm Sajid Sheikh from Veritas Technologies. Um, yeah, I think that's an important point you mentioned about understanding the culture and hacking it, but could you elaborate on hacking the culture? What exactly is 
uh, that and maybe give an example or two? Yeah, well, I gave one that is basically talking to people to understand how they work. Yeah, and then if you help them, you understand how they work and the problems they have, then you can help them. That is a way of saying, okay, I'm going to help you with innovation, with my way of working to solve your problem. And from there, you're going to support me. You're going to, you're going to help me. So basically, the, hacking the culture is um, not trying to change it because it's very difficult, but learn how it works. So for example, another example, um, purchases. Purchases in a big organization like Telefonica is mainly focused in big purchases, thousands of euros. But in an innovation project, sometimes what you need is 100 euros or so. So we sat with the people of purchases and we said, okay, what can I do? Because I don't want to go to the same process for 100 years than the rest of the people do for thousands of years. And we got an, an agreement, we sat, when we sat down with them, we understood that they also had their own KPIs, etc. So you have to understand how they work. And then we said, okay, but there's a way. Let's say that until 3,000 euros, we can make uh, small purchases without going through the whole process. Even the person can go to the shop and buy what is needed. So it's much faster. And above 3,000 euros, then we go through the whole process. But that is just sitting with the person, understand how they work, understand what they need and why they, they're just not asking to go through the process just because they want. No, it's because they have the KPIs, they have the processes, they just have some reporting to do and everything. So you understand it. And once you understand it, you together can find a way to help each other. Another example, the brand department. I sat with the brand department because when you're in the early stages, you cannot uh, use the brand. Because then, for example, you're trying to test the value proposition, and the value proposition is um, you launch it with the Telefonica brand, what are you testing? If the people think that Telefonica can provide that product or the value proposition of the product. And even sometimes when you're going to launch, you're going to make the pre-commercial, the pre-commercial launching, you need to use Telefonica, but Telefonica is not willing to launch a beta. Because what are our customers going to do? I mean, this is not perfect. It's not working properly. So uh, we sat together and we agreed that we should have uh, white brands when we are in the early stages. And also we have a Telefonica lab look and feel for those projects that are more in a better stage. So our customers can understand that it's not the typical product or the, the maturity of the product is not the typical that they may expect from Telefonica. Have I answered your question? Great, this is our last question. Hey there, I'm Robert Hergen with Humana Insurance. Um, so working in a regulated industry, did you ever challenge the regulations or the regulators um, <laughs> to better the consumer experience and how did you know when to do it or what was your experience doing that? <laughs> This is being recorded, yes? <laughs> I cannot say we have challenged the regulators. I mean, um, regulation is there, and you can get uh, very big fines if you, don't, if you do something that uh, the regulator is not allowing you to do. But there are always ways to find, uh, to find, um, to find um, 
a way of doing something, a way of testing a hypothesis. Uh, even, for example, some, some sort of, as I said before, the regulation tells us the type of product we can provide and the type of services. And in our particular case, in the regulation in Europe, um, we can only, uh, if we are in the e-commerce, we can only provide um, products that are digital, not physical, except smartphones or on, on phones. So when you're in the e-commerce and we want to do that, how are we going to do it? But there's always a way. Because, for example, you can partnership with somebody uh, that it's going to be the one that's going to deliver the physical product if you want to get in the e-commerce. I mean, there's always a way to find, to find it. Um, it's like, I, I don't know if that exists in, in English, but in Spanish we say, uh, once you set the rule, there is always a way to avoid it. So I don't know if, if in English something like that exists, but I mean, there's always a way. And hopefully, I hope the top management of Telefonica and, and, and the regulators haven't heard this. Thank you so much, Susanna. That was great. I appreciate it.